I could see a woman and two children. They ran with makeshift containers full of water. And the scene played over and over in my head. I watched the containers fall to the ground, spraying the precious liquid in much the same way as their bodies lost their blood. I watched them being gunned down. It was horrifying. I had sat helplessly in the turret watching through the scope as the scene unfolded two clicks away. The little boy who was trailing behind was the first to go down. His cries brought the woman who I assume was the mother running back to his side. She too was then shot repeatedly her lifeless body falling onto that of her dead son. Our APC was running to recharge the batteries, and so no one heard my screams as they resounded off the metal inside. The little girl who had been only a few steps away of the woman and boy now turned and ran back. I yelled in vain for her to stop. I began frantically searching for the shooter. It was all too far to engage with my C6 coaxial. I was enraged at the brutality. If I found the murderer, I was going to launch a rocket at him. I had to try to save that little girl. I kept searching from where the bodies lay as if to trace a line from where I thought the fire was coming from. And that's when I saw her body jump sideways. She fell, convulsing, the water spilling from her container. My heart sank. I had failed. And that's an excerpt from the book Ghost Keepers, written by retired Corporal Scott Casey who was amongst the lead elements of Canada's contribution to the United Nations peacekeeping effort into the former Yugoslavia in the early 1990s. And it's this term peacekeeping that Corporal Casey keeps derisively circling back to during the course of this book. Because as he got on the ground, he realized pretty quickly that there was not much peace to keep. This was, upon Corporal Casey's arrival, a hot war. A hot war fought between various factions of Serbs and Croats and Muslims and a variety of different local warlords. And what's truly remarkable is that the soldiers tasked with bringing peace to this land peace to Yugoslavia, they had little idea about what the situation truly was. It was as if they were in some ways being kept in the dark about what was about to be asked of them. And if the soldiers were kept in the dark, then the Canadian population surely was as well. For the peacekeeping mission to the region, to this region of Croatia, called the Krigina, 
and then to the Olympic city of Sarajevo in Bosnia, was anything but a walk in the park, or a vacation along the Dalmatian coast. Men like Corporal Casey would be asked to, as he put it, go beyond the rules of engagement, because those rules would get you killed. Now, this was a brutal mission. And as always, well, I shouldn't say as always, but my goal or where I'd like to take this podcast is to look at this book from the eye of a writer and an author. To see where Corporal Casey is coming from as this mission progresses. Because he's going to leave the Balkans a much different man than when he first arrived. So I'm going to focus on the atrocities Corporal Casey saw and how he and the other Canadians responded to that violence surrounding them and the mental toll that this took on those who were there, all the while being handcuffed by these ridiculous UN rules of engagement. Now, speaking just a little bit to what the UN or how the UN handcuffed these troops, let's go back to the book. As United Nations pawns, we could not appear aggressive. However, because the Balkans was in such anarchy, our officer staff was preparing for battle as best they could. The decision to take some of our artillery was ordered. Unfortunately, one afternoon, while the guys were in the process of painting three 105mm howitzers, the word came down to stop. We would not be taking anything this heavy to the Balkans. It was disappointing to our senior staff as well as to us. But the United Nations clearly said no. Working concurrently with vehicle painting and equipment checklists, we were going to be doing a lot of peacekeeping style training. This would be our biggest challenge. As infantry soldiers, we had only practiced full out kill, kill, kill. Like it or not, as infantrymen, that was our job. The role of the infantry is defined as follows. To close with and destroy the enemy. But with the upcoming peacekeeping mission, we had to switch gears and practice restraint while still maintaining combat vigilance. It was a very difficult transition at best. We had only a few weeks to be UN operational. So the training began immediately. I knew that as a soldier, I could at some point be called upon to kill. I certainly did not want nor desire that. My enthusiasm for the profession of soldiering was extremely high. My way of thinking was to preserve life and to secure Canada's borders from tyranny. I certainly did not have dreams or fantasize of killing people. The idea of killing, although an ancient global reality, to me was a last resort. The training we had received in the army was strictly built around killing. Now we were going to have to learn how to deal with belligerents without killing them. A complete reversal from our training. 
and it would prove, to say the least, interesting and, in reality, quite difficult. And I think what Corporal Casey is talking about here in this section is that there's a pretty good reason why our police and our military are separate institutions. Soldiers are trained to kill. Police are trained to keep the peace. Having so and so having soldiers perform the function of a local police force would it most likely lead to disaster because it's by and large not in their training. And more importantly, it's a completely different mindset required of the two jobs. Think of all the problems that arise when a police officer shoots somebody, some criminal on the street. Think of the protests, the the howls of indignity, the Black Lives Matter movement, and then times that by 10. Because that's what the situation would be if the military suddenly became the police force. Now, by the same token, you wouldn't send a police force off to war either, unless you were stupid or desperate, because they would get destroyed. Once again, police are not trained for that business, and they're ill-equipped for the task. And yet, in this mission to Croatia and Bosnia, we've got this bizarre uh, task of the soldiers, Because they're being asked to, the soldiers that we sent over there, they're being asked to perform the duties of a police force in a territory which is ostensibly uh, under some kind of peace agreement, but which is in reality a war zone. And so our soldiers, they had to appear less militaristic, less aggressive. There were orders to keep their rifles unloaded at all times because that would be seen as provocative. And they were forced to leave most of their heavy weaponry at home. I mean, Casey talks about leaving the howitzers back at the base because the UN says, no, they can't come. When you read this book, it becomes evident very early on that our soldiers were stripped of the crucial ingredients that made them soldiers in the first place. And this degradation of their profession fit in perfectly well with the government's idea at the time of what an army should be. You see, we didn't want an army. We wanted a peacekeeping force. Look at this from the book, top of page 27. Although the conservatives under Brian Mulroney were in power, The true-to-liberals had taken great liberties to reduce the military to its sad state of poor equipment and low morale during their tenure. As an example, when I was in the Special Service Force, we were not allowed to wear our camouflage smocks off base because it was considered to be too aggressive for the general public to view. Uh, A very common sentiment in the army about liberals. And it's, it's well known that throughout the 80s and the 90s, our military was, uh, as Corporal Casey puts it, in a sad state. There, there are stories of, well, I mean, we had soldiers, grown men, literally running around the forest with guns shouting bang, 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 because we didn't have enough money for ammunition. 
Uh, this was a military which was completely gutted at this time. Uh, Recall General Hillier referred to the 1990s as the decade of darkness for Canada's military. And what he was referring to there was the, uh, the complete lack of funding for the institution. So we're at the part now in the book where the Canadians, they've left their, uh, their, they've left their base in Germany and they're on the train ride into the former Yugoslavia. They're loaded up. Soldiers are ready as best they can be. They've got their equipment. And first stop is Slovenia, the home country of Melania Trump, the first lady, and also the most Western of the Yugoslav republics sitting on the border with Austria and Italy. So I'm going to go back to the book now. It was almost 7 p.m. when the train came to a stop. Somewhat disoriented, I sat up on my bunk. I leaned my head out the window. There was a commotion up to the lead car. There were men in blue uniforms outside having what appeared to be a heated discussion about something. I could not help but feel tense. I was not sure exactly where we were. I was certain only that it was a communist-style border. Word rustled back through the cars like leaves on the wind. We were entering Slovenia. Our train sat motionless for 20 minutes while the CEO and the border guards chatted about our progression into that country. The card games had ceased, and everyone milled about in the train car hallways and rooms. We were all a bit uneasy. Up to this point, none of us had been issued any ammunition. So, at this stage of the journey, it's like, what war? What civil war? There's no evidence. There's no destroyed buildings. There's no burning tanks. No homes riddled with bullet holes. No bodies in the streets. It's like the civil war never touched Slovenia. And indeed, that is essentially the case. Now, there was some fighting early on, but it was minimal compared to what happened in the rest of that country. Being the northernmost republic of the Yugoslavian Federation, Slovenia declared independence first, and they essentially got away with it. Due to distance and geography, there was very little that Belgrade could do about the secession. And so Slovenia, they, they make a clean break, and they're recognized by several European countries, and they manage to avoid the bloodshed. Yet as the miles start clicking south on the train, this all begins to change. And so, we'll go back to the book. The further we went into the former Yugoslavia, Scott Casey writes, the more apparent the signs of war became. The first sign of battle was a blown up church. It was riddled with bullet holes and the roof had completely collapsed. The surrounding buildings also carried the marks of battle. So they're getting into it now. Uh, at this point in the train ride, ammunition has finally been distributed. 
and passed around. And there's this realization that things could start going sideways at any moment. Unlike Slovenia, there are now Croatian army units and militias everywhere. Check stops everywhere. Back to the book. Our ridiculously long train and noticeably white UN vehicles made an easy target for fast air or infantry attacks. Paranoid thoughts for some, but normal for many of us soldiers. I could not help feeling vulnerable, and I guess the feeling was warranted. We really were vulnerable. The train began to decelerate, and I thought that we must be getting close to the unload point. Then something made my stomach twist like a bowl full of snakes. My mind raced to formulate a personal plan. We had not been given any semblance of instruction should we be engaged by hostiles. There was no quick reaction plan in place should someone attack us. This was totally against everything we had been trained to do. So something's happened. Uh, Casey realizes that they are vulnerable and there's, there's been no talk at all of a backup plan. No plan B if things go wrong. And the, this part I read, it just, it highlights perfectly the lack of seriousness that the upper echelons of the UN and the Canadian Army had for this mission. And so it's up to the individual soldiers to fill in the gaps and do what they need to do to not get killed. And this is a great example. The train slows down at a Croatian checkpoint, and it's clear the Croatian soldiers are not welcoming the UN as liberators. And Corporal Casey, for the first time, he feels this creeping sense of vulnerability that there could be danger. Now keep in mind, this is day one of what's supposed to be a peacekeeping mission. And the train full of UN troops, they are stopped at the Croatian checkpoint. There's armed guards at the station. And the train itself is like a sitting duck. So what does Corporal Casey do? In this situation, without any backup plan, without any plan at all, in case things go sideways? Well, let's turn the page and find out. We clattered into Daruvar, a town in Croatia, just short of the train terminal. The others in the rail car were shocked somewhat by my chambering of a round into the breech of my rifle. Corporal Casey, he isn't going to blindly walk off the cliff. No, there's danger present, and so despite not getting an order, despite there being no backup plan, he takes personal initiative and he loads his rifle. And it's apparently a good call because, as he writes later, the others in the train start doing the same thing. Although, there is also this... Hesitation amongst some as if they're thinking, what are you doing, Casey? What are you doing loading your rifle? This is supposed to be a peacekeeping mission. Why would we load our guns? Well, the reason why you should keep your rifle ready becomes very clear in short order. The Canadians unload the train and they start making out for an old army base called Camp Polom. 
And it's here that Corporal Casey and a dozen other soldiers are tasked with going further into the country to recce and set up a command center at a village called Serac, which is located in a region called the Krigina. And throughout this book, you, you'll hear a lot about this area called the Krigina. This sector is essentially the front line in the war between the Croats and the Serbs. And things start to get ugly fast. The first night, Corporal Casey writes, Battles could be heard all hours of the night in the distance. Thankfully, thankfully for us, the night passed without incidents. The next morning, Casey and Lieutenant Burke, it's sort of Casey's this uh, Lieutenant's right-hand man, essentially, and the others in the platoon, they continue onwards to the village of Serac, and... Going back to the book now. Our small UN task force headed for the village of Serac. After a few kilometers, I spoke to the lieutenant. You noticing what I'm noticing, sir? If it's the fact every building is destroyed, then yes, Lieutenant Burke replied. Yes, sir, that's it. Every house. It's bizarre, isn't it? Hey, check this out, Casey. The lieutenant pointed at the right side of the jeep. What is that? I don't know, but they don't look healthy, I responded as I surveyed the brown lumps he was referring to. Upon closer inspection in the field to our right, a dozen cows lay dead, and were now bloated to the size of elephant calves. And that is just a, a watered-down version of what's to come. In the village itself of Serac Corporal Casey's platoon, they set up in an abandoned community hall. Here's what he writes. The community hall from the outside was a typical cinder block building with a red tile roof, and the walls were riddled with bullet holes. The inside was a bit of a shock. As we entered, the smell of death was too close to mistake for anything else. It permeated the air with the smell of iron. It was a scene right out of a horror film. The walls and the floor appeared to be painted with blood. There were a few folding tables stretched out and a couple that had toppled over. These, we observed, had been used as operating tables. All the windows but two were smashed out. Casey writes about the sky th that night. He writes about the sky once again being filled with tracer fire. And the setting that he paints alone reminds me of something from a dystopian or a post-apocalyptic novel. Anyways, the, the platoon, they get settled in and they begin the routine of traveling the highways and back roads as this lead force looking to disrupt weapon transfers and head off belligerent activity and enforce this so-called peace agreement, which is apparently in place, though uh, there's heavy fighting going on. So, we'll, we'll go back to the book. The wind was refreshing as Burke and I cruised down the road. Our new UN flag was popping and snapping as it responded to the buffeting air. Depending on the wind, the smell was usually the first of my senses to respond. This time, however, it was sight that got the less than desired honor. For the most part, the grass that grew along the side of the roads was long and it was unkempt. 
It could hide many treasures or conceal some of the deadliest killers. As we drove along, the grass ahead appeared to be toppled on both sides of the blacktop. I slowed in response to the change so we could observe the different condition. Following the bent grass, our eyes beheld a slaughter. In either ditch were Serb soldiers, their bodies twisted in gruesome poses exactly where they had been rolled. The blacktop, which was faded gray from prolonged exposure to the sun, now had many dark, almost black, thick splotches of dried blood on it. The remainder of the scene around this massacre looked normal for the Krajina. The homes were riddled with shell holes, and most had collapsed roofs. Trees waved lazily in the wind, and birds flitted from branch to branch. They tripped as though these butchered wretches were not even here. We looked around speechless, trying to determine what had happened as I kept our jeep rolling. I surmised that the soldiers were walking in single file on either side of the road and had been caught in a perfect ambush. It did not look like any of them had a chance to even defend themselves. Now, there's some psychological warfare going on, I think. Usually in warfare, when atrocities are committed, the perpetrators at least try to cover up the evidence, especially when the eyes of the world are upon you. And I think back to my brother Dylan's time fighting alongside the Kurds against ISIS in Iraq, where ISIS would regularly come into villages and towns and they would kill off the entire male population. But they would bury the bodies afterwards to hide the crime. Now, to be sure, there were mass graves uncovered in the former Yugoslavia on all sides of the conflict, I may add. But I think in this situation, the Croats are sending a message. It might be a message to the UN, or it might be a message to the Serbs. It's unclear. Corporal Casey mentions numerous times, though, that the fluid, he mentions the fluid and the shifting nature of the front lines, and so it's likely that the Serbs could have retaken this territory at some point in time. And when they did, they would get the message from the Croats. Look at these bodies rotting in the sun. This is what will happen to you. I'm going to go back to the book because the atrocities start to come fast and furious right now. So Casey and Lieutenant Burke, they're, they're making the rounds again. It's a couple days, I think it's a day later. Back to the book. Without speaking, Bill thumbed in the direction to the right side of the Iltis. The road took us to the east end of Serac and past the community cement plant. The gravel road was narrow and enveloped by overhanging trees. Rocks pinged off the fender wells as we exited the canopy that covered the narrow road. Daylight returned as the canopy of foliage broke. Standing like an ancient ruin in the center of the opening before us was a stone monastery. It was known as the Pakra Monastery. We were now approximately 15, cl 15 clicks east of Serac, and seeing the religious structure, I immediately let off the throttle. Our inquisitive, almost touristy nature took over. Let's check it out, Scotty, Burke said with enthusiasm. Roger that, LT, was my guarded response. 
we dismounted before the dust had a chance to settle. Weapons at the ready, we spread out and cautiously stepped through an opening in the stone fence that surrounded the holy edifice. There was an eerie silence. A silence that follows death. And so that, that's going to be some foreshadowing for what's to come. Back to the book. The steps leading up to the large iron and wood door were weathered and worn from decades of parishioners' use. With a sharp creak that would have given Vincent Price a chill down his spine, I slowly pushed the door open. I quickly scanned approximately 40 by 80 interior. My first impression was one of an acknowledgement of Balkan history. Which is interesting because as time goes on, Scott Casey develops a uh, complete disdain for this country. But early on in the mission, there is some beauty to the country. There is some things to admire. Back to the book. The stone and wood combinations were attractive. My second impression, however, was one of dismay. The church had been completely ransacked. It was clear that someone had looted this place with little regard for its sanctity. I could see where the beautiful tapestries had once hung. It was obvious by the mess that anything of value had been plundered. Nearly all the pews were missing. The remaining ones lay askew and had been broken into large splinters. The pulpit, nearly thrown through a northeast-facing window, hung precariously from a jagged windowsill. In the musty air clung a scent that I had not smelled since cleaning out the meat room of our old ranch with my dad years ago as a kid. Lieutenant Burke stood momentarily in the doorway before following me in. We both surveyed their surroundings. I'll check the back, I said, pointing my rifle to the rear of the church. I made my way past the altar to the rear where I assumed the priest's quarters would be. Opening the door to the in-house portion of the Lord's building, all holiness vanished in one rushed, putrid gasp. The smell I recalled from the ranch hit my nasal passages like a hammer. It was the smell of hanging meat. There before me was what I believed to be the padre of this holy establishment, dangling from the less-than-ornate chandelier in the ceiling, was a taut rope. The other end of the rope had been strung around the priest's neck. His face was bloody and gray-blue from the obvious lack of oxygen. Frighteningly, his face had been pummeled by fists and boots before he died. His robes were so caked with dry blood, it was hard to tell where they ended and where the peeled skin began. The fresh air colliding with the rotting flesh of the corpse only disturbed the flies momentarily. Their buzzing wings drove straight at me, and I turned back with a jerk. Instantly repulsed by the scene, vomit filled the back of my mouth. I forced myself to swallow it back down. Looking down, I noticed I was standing in a stream of dried blood. Turning away, I closed the door to the scene. My strength was diminishing at the thought of lowering this man from the ceiling. Somebody strung him up. Somebody else could cut him down, I thought. My mind was reeling from the indignity inflicted upon this holy man. This display of evil had occurred on consecrated land. At this very moment, I questioned how good could possibly ever conquer over evil. 
And I think that good men who have seen the truth of war grapple with this answer to this question. Clearly more psychological warfare going on here. The message, this time, while there is no safe place, nothing is sacred in this land. The atrocities, the war crimes, they keep coming in less than 24 hours later. Casey and Burke are patrolling a, a rural area with a bridge over a small stream. Back to the book. I walked backwards to the jeep, covering my withdrawal from the bridge. I slid back into the seat and laid the C7 rifle back into its crook, only now the butt lay in my lap for quicker response. I started the jeep and we slowly rolled across the bridge. The smell in the air this whole time carried a sickly, sweet smell. I was pretty sure it was the smell of death. I did not know how right I was till we pulled into the center of town. We climbed out once again and proceeded to walk along the south side of the village. I took the lead and turned in between two of the houses leading into the backyards. As I rounded the corner of the cinder block home, my eyes narrowed at the grisly scene in front of me. There in the garden were six sun-baked swollen bodies. Four of them had stomachs bloated with rotten air. The other two had been deflated from having been eaten to varying degrees by wild dogs and other scavengers. The only sound was my labored breathing and the drone of a thousand flies. My stomach was motionless with the urge to vomit. Just savage. This mission is only a few days old, and already this guy is becoming familiar with the smell of death. Just brutal. And remember, folks, this is... Ostensibly, the UN keeps saying this is a peacekeeping mission. Later that night, or uh, early morning, this is what Corporal Casey writes, I woke the following morning around 0400 hours. I could not sleep anymore. Visions of the bodies had haunted me all night. Their vacant eyes stared at me. Corporal Casey and many of the men he served alongside with were utterly transformed by this mission. And how could you not be? When you speak to soldiers who have seen horrendous atrocities, they almost always, to a man, suffer or deal with nightmares like this. It starts eating at your soul. Scott Casey is pretty upfront about this suffering, this mental anguish, if you want to call it that. And though he doesn't exactly state when it started, I think these passages provide a, a pretty good clue. Further on, Scott Casey, he writes about being caught up in a dueling artillery barrage. This is, this is now page 66. In the distance, we could hear the thumping sounds of mortars being fired. I had already begun aggressively turning halfway through the delivery. The narrow iltis nosed down into the opposite ditch, almost rolling over. Leaning to the opposite side as if to help stop the rollover, it came back up on the road, flailing mud from its tires as I, as I stomped viciously on the tiny throttle pedal. Carrying straight on would have been an easier escape route. However, we had to turn around or face being cut off from our brothers to the north. 
My foot was rammed so hard to the floor that it felt like it would bend this flimsy sheet of metal floor. We accelerated and were now flying down the road in front of the HV defensive position. This HV is the Croat position. We were navigating potholes and concertina wire. I was trying to stay calm, which is difficult at the best of times when driving an Iltis this fast. The fog was now the least of our worries, as I propelled our vehicle at breakneck speed through the soup, as we were now trying to evade an impending mortar attack. Apparently the bad guys were all hiding in their bunkers because we drove down the front line with not a single shot being fired at us. At 120 kilometers an hour, and with the cover of the fog, they would have had a hard time hitting us anyway. As I maneuvered sharply, the jeep, four-wheel, drifted around the corner at the junction. The first bombs began smashing into their targets only a few hundred meters behind us. The tires of the jeep howled with the torture from the tight turn. With my foot once again jammed tight to the floor, the jeep wobbled on its narrow chassis. The concussion of the detonating rounds punched at our bodies. In my mirror, I watched as the fire explosions flashed bright rings in the air, only to be swallowed up by the fog. I slowed down and we stopped a kilometer to the north, parking on a hillside facing back towards the battle so we could observe the carnage from afar. We gazed upon the scene at the Dravagic line, with our jaws hanging somewhat open. The battle was in full swing as mortar and artillery rounds pounded the buildings that lined either side of the road. The flashes exploded brightly, followed by earth-shaking concussions that we could feel even as they resonated to our lofty vantage point. The white blanket of fog had now been replaced by a much grayer version. Small arms fire began to chatter from under the smoke in the fog blanket. Tracer rounds flashed upwards through the fog cover and burned till they tumbled from sight. Muffled screams of men in pain and panic echoed up the hillside. My God, were the words that escaped from Bill's hanging jaw. And Bill is uh, Lieutenant Burke. And Scott Casey's right beside him, and he says, better them than us. He hoped that he would not face the same kind of shelling. And that's a, and that's a hope that does not come to fruition. And when you read passages like this one, it's staggering to think that the Canadians didn't take more casualties than they did on this mission. Casey refers several times to an angel that looked after November Company. And it makes you wonder. I'm going to jump forward a little bit uh, to the part where some, some new guys arrive. Some, some of the rest of November Company has now come to Serac. Uh, they're now setting up in the base that Corporal Casey and Lieutenant Burke uh, started constructing or getting ready. And they, they start peppering Casey with questions about what it's like to be in the Krajina because he's the veteran now. He's been there since the beginning. So back to the book. Closer to me, some of the guys were asking questions. My rifle rolled in my hand as I shifted on the cot. I could hear them, but there was something outside that was drawing my thoughts to it. Hey, how do you tell a Croat from a Serb? The questions were coming so quickly, I could not answer. Completely distracted, I now had one foot on the cot and one on the floor. Thump. Silence. Thump. 
silence. Those sounded like mortars being fired. But the barrage of questions continued. Hey, are all the houses blown up? Boom. Boom. Funny, those mortar rounds sound like they're being fired from the north. Hey, Scotty, where the heck is Jeruvar from here? I ignored this question as well. My body instinctively began to recoil. I was getting a really bad feeling about the shelling. Those of us who had been here for the last three weeks had already been exposed to mortar attacks. My mind continued processing the information it was receiving, and it told me to get another sense involved. Hey, these rounds are getting close. Get your stuff together. I was already walking for the door. I opened the flap just in time to see the explosion of a mortar round as it slammed into the ground, 50 meters away. It silhouetted two of our platoon headquarters guys who were busy laying wire. Their bodies flew through the air as they were blasted by the concussive waves. The words came out of my mouth just like I was watching someone else yell them. Get down, the next one's dropping short. Within a split second, I was hurled backwards by the very near explosion of the mortar. My sinuses exploded and snot and spit and blood flew from my mouth and nose. I landed like a ton of crap on one of the cots in the fourth row back from the door. I would find out years later that I, was, that I had wrecked four vertebrae in my lower back. I was frantically trying to gather my bearings. Guys were running everywhere, trying to get out of the tent. I could see their mouths moving. They were yelling, but I could not hear them. I winced in pain as my right hand got stepped on. I tried to get up and I fell over again. Where's my rifle? I've got to get out of this tent. My head was pounding. I rubbed my face and my hand came back covered in blood. There was a soft opening in my scalp just above my hairline. I found my rifle under one of the cots and now scrambled out of the tent. Most of the troops were loaded up in the APC and were rumbling out of the school grounds at high speed, churning up the grass as they went. I ran to my Iltis and jumped into the driver's seat, fired it up, and waited for the LT. So far, the mortar and the artillery barrages that Casey has been exposed to come as a result of patrolling the frontier between the Croats and the Serbs, where it's simply a case of being in the wrong place at the wrong time, because this is a war zone after all. But this is not a random attack. This mortar barrage is targeted specifically at the Canadians. And we find out later that Casey does get wounded in, in the leg. There are a dozen others who are wounded as well. And once the dust settles, Casey goes back to where he started this excerpt from, which is in his tent. But the tent is gone. It's blown away. It took a direct hit. So it, things could have been a lot worse. What this attack does is, well, first of all, it highlights to all the new guys who have shown up from November Company what this mission is going to look like. And secondly, to Casey and the others who have been there for a while, it further reinforces this idea, this question of, what are we doing here? We're putting our lives on the line to bring peace to this country, and yet, it seems nobody wants peace. The Serbs don't want them here. The Croats don't want them here. 
as Casey so interestingly puts it at one point in the book, he says, many people in this country prefer war. They don't want peace. Because with peace, they have to go back to their families, their jobs, their daily routines that they might not enjoy. War gives them a chance to escape all that. And there are certainly people, I think, in our own lives and workplaces, people who thrive on creating conflict and strife. You got to watch out for those guys. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. By this point in the book, after seeing so much brutality from all sides, there is outright disdain for the Croats, the Serbs, the Muslims, the entire country. Casey and the, and the guys, they're watching the news one night in camp, and they are baffled by the inaccuracy of the reporting. So he, here's what Casey says about the media, and we're going back to the book here. It was laughable to watch the news on the one TV that our company quartermaster brought from Germany. We had hooked it into the satellite link. That was not all that was a joke in regards to watching the tube. It was as if the reporters were reporting on a totally different war than the one we were watching. The Serbs were doing this, and the Croats were doing that. When in reality, they were quite often killing their own people and blaming it on the other side just for the media. So all sides in this war, they're, they're killing their own. It's a PR game. Make the other side look bad, even if it means killing your own. And then you win international sympathy. As Machiavelli wrote, this is a classic case of appearance over reality. So be careful what you read and see in the press, especially when it comes to politics and war. Now, just in case you fall into the category of those who assume that this could never happen in Canada, that Canada is so removed from the course of human events that our post-national country could never descend into this kind of madness, this savagery, well... Scott Casey would like you to consider this. So I'm going to go back to the book where Corporal Casey, he's talking to one of his buddies about this disturbing analogy of taking the war in the Balkans and bringing it back to Canada. So could it happen here? Well, we're going to go back to the book now. Here we go. This war could easily be fought back home in the same way. Think about it. At the base level, Serbia, in terms of its distance, its ethnicity, its way of life, and its overall disdain for the rest of the country, its take, 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 and give little in return attitude, and its people's desire for a pure state that reflects only their values, that's Serbia. Or Quebec. You follow me? Continue, Tyler replied. Okay, so one day Slovenia has had enough, and that's BC. So they break away. And luckily, there's no bloodshed. I'm listening, Tyler confirmed. Okay, well then, Alberta and the Prairies, that's Croatia. Seeing what BC has done, they decide to do the same. Only they, ain't, they aren't so lucky to get away without a fight. 
oil money, right? Hey, Ontario, that's Bosnia. Carry on, Tyler said. Okay, well, so the war starts. Now English-speaking and French-speaking neighbors are killing each other in all the western provinces because of their ethnicity, claiming enclaves of their own, much the same as here in Croatia and Bosnia. I just don't want this to happen to Canada. And if the separatists have their way, it could be a reality, and it scares the crap out of me. So just a little bit of historical context to uh, this conversation that Corporal Casey's having with his friend Tyler. Right about this time, the Quebec independence movement is ramping up its political operations. We've got the the emergence of the Bloc Québécois, the federal scene. Um, we've got Provincial Party Québécois uh, coming to the fore in, in the provincial politics. And we're only a couple years away from the Quebec referendum, which saw that province almost break away from Canada with just a fraction of the vote separating the, the two sides, the yes and the no side. And so there, what Casey's talking about here is not some theoretical analogy. It's very, very concrete. And, and so could Canada turn into a balkanized society like the one Scott Casey is warning about? Well, if, if we look at a greater historical context, the some of the greatest historians of the past, they had these notions that I think today people would find rather quaint and antiquated. And these ideas centered on the notion that countries had to be based upon three pillars that unite people. And those three pillars are a common language, a common religion, and a common ethnicity. And the idea was that if you were to scramble this up and take away these unifying factors, then you don't have much of a country at all. Now let's look at Yugoslavia through that lens. Was there a common language? Okay, yes, there was, more or less. But was there a common religion? Certainly not. You had the Croats who are from the Western Catholic tradition, the Serbs who are Eastern Orthodox, and the Muslim population of Bosnia, which is different entirely. And the same goes for ethnicity. Now for us, as outsiders looking at these people, you can't tell them apart. It's very difficult. But when you are from there, you know. You know who belongs to who. You know what tribe someone belongs to by the manner of their speech, their dress, their customs, their names, their history. And so there was no unifying factor. Which I think you would be a fool to discount in terms of the cause of this war. And the viciousness of this war. And when we apply this same standard to Canada, well, let's look at it. Is there a common language in our country? No, there is not. We've got French and English and a whole host of other languages too because we are a multicultural society. Okay, well, do we have a common religion? Once again, the answer is no. We, it's a multicultural society. Is there a common ethnicity? No, there's a, it's a multicultural society. Is there anything beyond a sense of civic nationalism that is tying us all together? Common bonds, common history? No, there is not. And if you look at history, 
countries do not survive on the long term when they are constructed in such a fashion. And that's why I think it would be foolish to discount the notion that what happened over there in the Balkans could not happen here. But I digress just a little because now I'm going to go back to the book. Because of the escalating conflict to the south, southeast, the racial fight was in effect recharged here throughout much of Sector West, and our plate was now heaping once again. Indiscriminate shots from one side or the other turned into raging ethnic infernos. As in Canada's peacekeeping past, it was our task to extinguish the fires of hatred. The whole on-again, off-again process was very taxing on everyone in November Company. Added patrols and increased patrol distances only worked to stretch the framework of time. Moments turned into hours, which turned into days, which caused most guys to lose track of time completely. With dodging small arms fire and being virtually on my own, my nerves were worn raw. Within the week, we had suppressed the racial tension, but not before hundreds more on both sides had been slain. The bodies piled up, and my strength to deal with them dwindled. Some of us had been tasked with the unpleasant duty of assisting with bagging some of the bodies for burial. The scene was morbid, to say the least. We were assisting in the removal of civilian deaths. As with the town of Gorgi Borki earlier, the corpses, the corpses littered the streets and the homes. The remaining citizens who were living would take them to the local cemeteries for burial. There was a lot of crying and praying by the people. Many walked about in what I thought could only have been a catatonic state. This was especially noticeable when an elder would bring the body of a child. It made me think of my own little girl at home, and I immediately flicked the emotional switch to off. As difficult as this was, I was thankful we had not been here a year earlier and gone to Vukovar. I felt blessed that I had only had to deal with my own little piece of hell here in the Krajina. Over the next week or so, my mind kept replaying the kaleidoscope of ugly images, and they tormented my every waking moment. Just more brutality, more savagery. I think in the West we have this idea that uh, the Serbs were the, the true bad guys of this war. I think that's where the historiography is going. Uh, Corporal Casey is pretty clear that it's both sides, though. Or I shouldn't say both sides, all sides in this conflict. There's more than two, there's three sides. So at the end of June, there's rumors amongst no November Company that they're going to be leaving the Krajina and going to Sarajevo. In Sarajevo, it is, uh, it's the epicenter of this civil war and probably the most dangerous place in the entire region. And so I'm going to go back to the book now where the Canadians are, they've broken camp and now they're in a big convoy moving towards Sarajevo, but there's going to be some challenges along the way. So back to the book. Almost immediately after the order came through confirming that the Canadian battle group would be deploying to and securing the Sarajevo airport, 
The battle group sent a small recce advance party to the besieged city. Major Devlin and his driver, Jared Gaynor, were part of that advance party. They had been down there for a couple days when news got back to us that they had been shelled. Jared had been chewed up a bit by shrapnel and had to be medevac to a hospital. The major was okay. The news hit us all pretty hard. We did not know how bad off he was. There was a notable increase in the tension level amongst the men in black. Peacekeepers or not, pity the dumb bastards that crossed us now. In other words, it's on. These guys, they've been taking casualties for weeks and months. They've been getting shot at, shelled, mortared, all the while handcuffed by the UN rules of engagement. And now it's on. It's like there's a collective breaking point that now it's time to go beyond the rules of engagements that, as Corporal Casey says, will get you killed. So, on the road to Sarajevo, back to the book. We encountered a few roadblocks while on the journey. Many warlords were drunken abusers of the people in their local areas. They may or may not have had military training or a background prior to the war beginning, and merely took up arms and to killing anyone who would not succumb to their new power. Colonel Jones tried to make peace with this particular warlord by assuring him we were just passing through and had no quarrel with him. However, he was an obnoxious drunk. It would not listen to reason. He told Colonel Jones that if we tried to continue, he would order a full-scale attack of our convoy. As evening was drawing near, our battle group commander decided it would be best to avoid confrontation, and we withdrew till morning, hoping that a sober mind would prevail. So the Canadians, they're moving to Sarajevo, they've hit this Serbian checkpoint. The Serb commander is drunk, which seems quite common for the region at this time. And Colonel Jones, who is in command, he orders the, the battle group to retreat back to a fortified position, uh, which is on a hilltop, heavily wooded, easily defensible, should the Serbs decide to attack. And they reckon on trying to move past the checkpoint again in the morning, hopeful that this Serb commander is going to be less intoxicated and sober. So back to the book. This is the next morning. As expected, the Serb commander had blocked the road in anticipation of our return. Colonel Jones went forward and he was met by a somewhat less intoxicated warlord. He was still just as belligerent as the previous day. The worst part of the standoff was that we were sitting ducks, lined up in a perfect row on the road. Occasional sniper fire from poorly disciplined warlord forces plinked into our ranks. As the situation escalated, our CO ordered that we would deploy our TUAs to overwatch our positions. Those are heavy weapons. Our snipers were also deployed with orders to kill the warlord first, then to kill targets of opportunity. And this saber-rattling plateaued with Colonel Jones telling the Serb warlord that if he reinforced his position, we would advance and kill everything in our path, starting with our snipers killing him. No matter what happened, after the start of the battle, he would be the first to die. Colonel Jones made this made him very aware of this. Without giving it a second thought, as the warlord was mauling this over, the colonel made the decision to exploit the opening of the indecision. 
Our convoy roared to life, and we drove through the roadblock. We moved right through without firing a shot or being fired upon. You can really see in this book the importance of aggression. Whenever one side starts being aggressive, they get the upper hand. And in this case, it's the Canadian colonel, this Colonel Jones, who delivers the threat that his snipers are going to kill that Serbian commander. And once that threat's delivered, there is some, there's a moment of indecision amongst that Serbian commander. And in the moment, Colonel Jones orders the troops to roll through and they exploit the enemy's weakness and they continue on to Sarajevo. Now, there is another stop along the way. Uh, this time it's an older woman. She comes running at the soldiers with flowers in her hands. Uh, Casey at first thinks it might be a uh, enemy combatant and he raises his rifle. When he sees it's an older woman, he relaxes the on the trigger. And let's find out what happens next. The woman, upon seeing the look in my eyes and the fact that she was looking down, my rifle slowed down. I cautiously waved her in as I took up the slack on the trigger. The haggard woman slowly proceeded, the scent of flowers only temporarily covering the smell of her body odor caused by months of improper hygiene. She laid the flowers on my lap and took my arm in her hands and began kissing it. The months of war streaming down her face. She had been witness to a husband and a son being executed in her front yard before her. At gunpoint, she was forced to watch her daughter being taken away, screaming into a back room and raped repeatedly and then shot because she was young enough to bear offspring. Sobbing, she cried, Dabra, Dabra, please, please. I was fighting to maintain my cool. She was so close to eating a burst from my C7 rifle. The thought went through my head to give this wretched soul the comfort she was seeking. However, I could not seem to reach out to her. I could end her suffering either through a hug or by squeezing the trigger. I looked into her eyes and I allowed her pain to transfer to me. It was as though she could see into my soul and may have gained some consolation from that. My heart was pounding and I could not stop sweating. And then later on that night or early, very early the next morning, Corporal Casey, he's, he's sleeping and, well, this is what he said. Back to the book. I laid my head on the butt pack in my fighting order and drifted off to the staccato of machine guns firing in the distance. The old woman came back to me that night. She kept saying, Dabra, Dabra. I tossed and turned. She was making me crazy. It's a rare soldier who has gone to war and who doesn't have those one or two particular moments that come back to haunt them at night as nightmares again and again. And this old lady and her suffering are clearly in Scott Casey's head. This is the next day, bottom of page 168. Going back to the book now. After a half hour delay, we exited the security of the canopy and pressed on for the show. 
the show would be the name many of us would use to refer to Sarajevo. We entered the city limits at approximately 10-20 hours. We drove past a TDF checkpoint and meandered our way through a couple of GNA checkpoints. A kilometer from the airport and we encountered one of, if not the most infamous of all the buildings during our time of tenure. Hanging from the windows was a Canadian flag. To its right, painted in big letters, were the words, Welcome to Sarajevo. The building became infamous to us because we were shot at routinely from that location. As bad as we thought the first few months were, they were about to be overshadowed by a scene so ugly, Lucifer himself would cringe. So, there's definitely some foreshadowing going on here. Now, the next part of the book, Scott Casey and the Canadians, they are in Sarajevo. They're getting set up. And he, he mentions right away about the, the recent past of this city, which includes the Winter Games of 1984. And less than a decade later, and the city is just destroyed. So, things fall apart pretty quickly here. And we're going to get back to the book. In 1984, Sarajevo was a portrait of Olympic beauty, colorful and full of life. Athletes and tourists buzzed around the city with joy in their hearts. In 1992, less than a decade later, the city was filled with death. People raced from point to point to avoid being shot by snipers. Gone were the bright colors and the feelings of joy. They had been replaced by charred paint and the feelings of doom and despair. The act of getting the daily water could get you killed. Snipers did not discriminate. They shot soldiers, women, children, and pets. I actually do not like referring to them as snipers. It's an insult to those who do that job with honor. These barbarians were actually just murderers. couple things there. Uh, like I said before, Sarajevo goes from this uh, Olympic city in 1984, a place of well, the biggest party in the world, a place of unity. And seven, eight years later, it's the epicenter of this civil war. And as for the snipers, while well, usually in warfare, it's very common where soldiers will have at least a modicum of respect for the other side. But, not these guys. The snipers that Casey's dealing with, they're murderers. They're killing women and children. They're killing everybody. There's no honor in that. Now, Casey talks about many situations where innocents were killed by these snipers. I'm going to read to you one section here. It was common practice for snipers from all sides in the conflict to shoot regular citizens in Sarajevo. The French Marines had organized anti-sniper posts. These posts were set up to observe snipers killing innocent people and to provide proof that these crimes were taking place. In one case, when a UN vehicle was placed in, partic in a particular OP, sniping from the Bosnian parliament buildings would cease. When a UN vehicle was removed, the sniping of civilians would resume. 
These posts were designed to observe and record these killings. Each side would deny that this sort of activity was taking place and that it must be the other side committing the action. We knew it was a pile of crap. Other posts were designed to kill criminal snipers. Part of the UN mandate allowed for the protection of civilians by the use of deadly force. When we first got to Sarajevo, I personally witnessed a pregnant woman being shot. The scene unfolded so fast that it was unbelievable at first and none of us could react. It was across the Sava River, so not only did I witness it, I was also helpless to do anything about it. This would be commonplace for us in Sarajevo, and the list of incidents would only become longer. To this day, the incidents still haunt me. Another similar occurrence happened later that day. A Vandu section was on patrol when they were involved in rescuing a woman who had been gunned down along with two others. She was fortunate to be alive. Sergeant Jacques pulled his carrier up to the scene to create a blocking device to try and pull the innocent to safety. Sergeant Jacques and another soldier exited the track and crawled to the aid of the first victim. He was dead. Jacques crawled to the next casualty. Dead. He made it to the woman and quickly pulled her in the direction of the carrier, the whole time under effective fire. There were some soldiers there who appeared to be TDF providing covering fire for the UN troops. With all the effort that Jacques and the others put in, the outcome was traumatic. The subsequent political ramifications exploded. The locals were angry with us for not having removed the dead, only the living. We were also perceived as helping the TDF, and the Serbian government played it up that way. When I worked in politics at Parliament Hill, there was a saying amongst people who worked there. And, and that went for like the junior staffers all the way down to the MPs. And that saying was, no good deed will go unpunished. Because there were snakes everywhere trying to gain advantage. And it feels like this is the case where men are trying to do the right thing, but there are snakes everywhere. There are no good guys. Everyone's tainted. And so when you try to do, the, even when you try to do the right thing, there's ramifications. By the time Corporal Casey, by this time Corporal Casey, he's very upfront with the deteriorating state of, of mind that months in the field and getting shot at while not being able to do much about it has taken on him and the others. And this interaction with the reporter is evidence of that and also the general situation that these men are operating in. So right here, Corporal Casey, he's at the Sarajevo airport. Um, he's been interviewed by a couple of news stations and uh, now and he, he's getting a little frustrated with the attention. So I'm going to go back to the book right now. The news must have gotten out from my interview with Miss Amanpour that I was a good read. It was barely a day after our conversation that journalists began flocking to me. 
Britain's Sky News, the BBC, even the odd Canadian journalist appeared to be seeking me out looking for any shred of information regarding how I thought the UN peacekeeping mission was going. And just to back up a little bit, the reason that Casey is sort of a magnet for these reporters is he, uh, he, he's been giving some very like brutal and upfront, uh, assessments of the situation. He's not speaking in platitudes and euphemisms. He's, uh, he, he's giving them his personal thoughts. And so he, he is a good, it seems he's a good interview. Back to the book. The troops noticed too. It was flattering at first. It appeared that they thought I would, I had the inside scoop somehow, but I was just a corporal. I could not begin to contemplate about what is really happening here on a global scale. It was laughable. They wanted to report on the big stuff, but did not know the difference between a high-ranking officer and a non-commissioned officer. Unfortunately, all the attention could only lead to some personal security issues. If the media thought I was a somebody, then it was safe to assume that the local war parties might think the same thing. It got to a point one afternoon standing on the tarmac while waiting to go out on convoy that I blew my fuse. Excuse me, Corporal Casey, might I have a word with you? A correspondent asked. No, you may not have a word with me. You may take your questions and get out of here. You are going to get me killed or possibly some of my buddies killed who are unfortunate enough to be standing close by, Casey said. Surely one question wouldn't hurt, the reporter asked. I got up on the pallet I was sitting on and stepped in close to assist in making my point. I guess they don't teach you clowns much, eh? Like what it means to be sniper-checked. Sniper-checked? The, the voice cracked. Yeah, Casey said. It's when you want to get someone you don't like blown away by the enemy. It's nice and clean. You don't have to get your hands dirty. All you do is salute him and the enemy thinks he's a general or something like that. And blammo, he loses his brains all over the place. The bad guys are always watching us, even right now. That press patch on your fancy body armor you're wearing, it doesn't mean anything. If you ever come near me again, I'll be saluting you, and so will all my friends. You got it? And, of course, the, the reporter does get, he does get it, and he walks away. Sniper checked, a very Machiavellian way to get rid of your enemies. And of course, the, the stress is mounting the entire time. Back to the book. With the restraints of peacekeeping, there's that word again, placed upon us, we were all close to the melting point. Although Canadians are renowned for peacekeeping, we were trained as soldiers who fight wars first. All of us had trained extensively for full throttle battlefield conditions. And even though this was a battlefield, it was not ours. Unlike the years of battlefield conditioning, we had only trained for four weeks to do this kind of peacekeeping slash warfare. The stress was high and it was taking its toll. Right after that, right after that, Scott Casey, uh, well, I'm going to read a part where he's getting shot at. Um, there's a sniper hidden somewhere and he's got his sights trained on Casey. Back to the book. We all did our turn, 
doing security for a camp, and this early morning was no different. Walking from the, our southeast perimeter trenches to our living quarters after a quiet sentry shift, I was treated to a wake-up call. Instinct quickly forced me to a crouched run in the early morning mist. A well-hidden sharpshooter in an apartment complex across the Sava River had opened up on me. I dodged and weaved from bushes to buildings within our compound. With each step, my labored breaths were audibly obscured as the near hit of sniping bullets creased the air. Every move I made was like a life-size personal chess match where I was manipulating my pawns like self. 100 meters now separated me from the safety of our quarters. It was apparent that with each shot he fired, the shooter was learning quickly how to give the lead time. Each shot he took got closer to me. With a running jump, I threw myself down by a half dozen stacks of empty sandbags. The impact forced spit to explode from my mouth as I hit the ground. As I struggled to get air into my burning lungs, I rolled over once and pulled a full sandbag up under the forestock of my rifle. Lifting my head, I dared to find where the shots were coming from to no avail. Dropping from a window just above me, shattering glass and splintered wood from his shots fell on and around me. In front of me, the sandbags were puffing from his incoming fire. The hot steel jacketed shells burned the dark green nylon material of the sandbags. Because the sandbag layers were stacked on their side, they acted much like Kevlar. Small dirt clumps flew through the air in front of the bags. I could not help but laugh cynically through my controlled hysteria. This is peacekeeping, I said. I lay motionless for a minute. The shops kept coming in sporadically. As I was trying to figure my next move, a horrendous explosion rocked the buildings across the river, and I risked looking up again. Gray concrete dust and smoke boiled out of the side of one of the apartment buildings. Almost instantly, flames began to lick up the outside walls of the complex. Although no more shots came my way, I lay there for a while. Casey goes on to say that he, he does make it back to his base. The, the shooter, it seems, was taken care of or killed by this uh, other enemy RPG, which hits the building and destroys the sniper nest that he's in. But yeah, just... Uh, Here's Casey, he's out very close to the base, very close to what's supposed to be a safe place, and taking sniper fire. When I read that part of the book, it, it reminded me a lot of my brother Dylan when he was in Iraq. Uh, he was near the front lines, and uh, behind the lines there was a place where people could go to the washroom. Uh, of course, the washroom was just a, a hole in the ground, but it wasn't in some kind of like uh, sea container some kind of hangar-like building. Um, and as he's taking a leak, there, there's bullets like smacking the the upper parts of this uh, building. And so case, and, it's, and so it's like, you know, it's supposed to be a relatively safe place, but even just going to the washroom, you're, you're going to be taking fire. And of course, the blue helmet that Casey's wearing, well, that, that doesn't mean anything. It's not a shield. It's, it's more of a target for these sharpshooters. Now, a little earlier in the book, Corporal Casey, he's 
He's in Sarajevo, and he's selected to join some French Marines as they escort General Louis Mackenzie around the city. Now, unlike much of the government elites and upper echelon people, General Mackenzie is someone who Casey has a lot of respect for. Primarily because he's a commander who knows when to break the rules. When it comes down to either following the UN rules of engagement or doing the right thing, General Mackenzie, he's the kind of commander who's going to do the right thing to keep his men safe. And as we've seen throughout history, very few commanders have that inner fortitude and it's that inner fortitude to go against orders. And it's a quality that's deeply respected by his men. So General McKenzie, solid general. The men have a lot of respect for him. Anyways, Casey is now in a hangar on the, the main UN base in Sarajevo, and he meets up with that same French Marine who was leading the general security detail. So I'm going to go back to the book now. There was a platform built in the southwest corner of the hangar. Each platform was surrounded by a curtain of black hessian. There it was. Movement. The hessian moved again and a figure appeared. As he climbed down and walked over to me, it became clear he was the French Marine. As he approached, I instantly recognized him from the mission to guard General Mackenzie. He was the Marine who had instructed me where to meet. Recognizing me, he was all smiles, and he invited me up into the hiding hole. Once on the platform, I tried to tell him about the mix-up that other day. He put his fingers to his lips, signaling me to be quiet. For the next 20 minutes, I just sat and watched. I was entertained by the performance, and the show was about to shift gears. He motioned for me to lie down and look through the spotting scope. Through his partner's spotting scope, I observed him wave at an opposing sniper. It was chillingly amusing. Then, with deadly accuracy, he killed two others. I confirmed both of his kills. I had never done anything like this. This was stuff left to our snipers. I was a good shot, yes, but a sniper, I was not. Letting his French made. FRF2 sniper rifle lean on its bipod, he shimmied over and motioned for me to take the number one position, and I waved him off. He insisted. I tried again to refuse. He made it clear he was having none of it. This was an opportunity not afforded normally, so I quietly obliged and slid in behind his rifle. I was excited to some degree, I admit, and I considered it an honor for him to allow me to use his rifle. My stomach knotted up instantly as I slid into the shooting position. I was making a choice by lying here. One I would have to live with for the rest of my life. In broken English, he had me aim from behind the Hessian and fire a single shot to see where the weapon shot with me behind it. Relaxing, I took a few deep breaths, took up the slack on the trigger, and on the third, I released partway and squeezed the trigger. What the hell am I doing here? This is awesome. The rifle fired and bucked into my shoulder. He and I were close in zeroing. 
We determined that a slight correction by aiming off to the right a bit should have me in line for a good shot. I was then left to my thoughts as I scanned the buildings of Dobrinja for a target, checking windows and holes in the cinder block. The vision of the woman and her two children exploded in my mind. I closed my eyes trying to block them out. It was no use. I had been lying there for about 25 minutes when a man appeared. He was dressed in dark clothing except for his dirty gray sports t-shirt. He was sporting what looked like a hunting rifle with a big scope. I allowed my mind to wander. Could this be the same guy? The one who murdered the innocent children and their mother? I blew some air into my palm to dry up the sweat that had just formed. I tried desperately to control my breathing. I was angry. Then he did it again. He dropped to one knee and fired a shot towards a group of people running between buildings. I envisioned the unarmed woman being shot as she carried water to her home. My grip tightened in anger. He got up and ran out of sight. I lay patiently. He appeared in another window. He repeated this darting from window to window. Then I could just see his face as at first he quickly moved into a kneeling position again. I knew from watching that this was his pattern of attack. My mind drifted off to when I was a young child at my rural one-room schoolhouse. Some of the older boys had urged me to stick my tongue on a frozen swing set. I knew that firing the shot was going to be like pulling my tongue free from the frozen metal because I was going to be leaving a little piece of myself behind. As I looked through the scope, the reticule lined up on his center of mass. Centered perfectly in the sight glass were three famous words emblazoned on his dirty gray t-shirt. Just do it. I'm not sure which of my senses reacted first. Was it the jarring of the rifle or the sound of the report in my ears? As I mentally followed the projectile in its flight, I watched it explode into the murderer's chest. He hung there motionless, his face showing disbelief and pain. His blood immediately oozed onto his shirt, darkening it as it drizzled down his abdomen. Then he fell forward all over himself. Click was the next sound I heard as I released the trigger. I could smell the powder from the shot. It burned softly in my nose. My right ear was ringing. To this point, members of our crew, including me, had returned fire. However, it struck me now that I had deliberately searched for this guy and killed him. It was personal. The feeling was one of numbness combined with elation. Even if I could have spoken French, I was glad we were not speaking on the platform. I would not have known what to say. The French sniper put his hand on my shoulder, and with his black staring eyes, he smiled. I turned my head over the butt of the rifle to see him, and I was instantly looking at my own reflection. I was secretly glad I had not seen any more bad guys. I felt that retribution had been attained in regards to the water carriers. Scott Casey, he writes earlier in the book that he never wanted to kill anybody. He never fantasized about killing the bad guys. I wonder. I wonder 
if that's changed at this point in the book. I wonder at what point did that switch flip? Because he feels a lot of different emotions now. He feels numbness, but he, by his own admission, feels elation, happiness. Retribution has been attained. And I think if you talk to soldiers who have pulled the trigger, you'll find that this is a common sentiment. When you take a life, you are never the same. Scott Casey tells us that. Because it's so fundamentally at odds with everything we believe in. That even if the guy had it coming, it's still a profound experience that stays with you forever. I think of my own brother Dylan. He killed at least two jihadists in Iraq. Possibly more. And he's straight up in saying that he feels no remorse. In fact, at the time, he said it was the best day of his life. Now, Scott Casey, he's not going that far, but it seems that it's a, it's a pretty good day for him, despite the complicating emotions that go along with it. Now, switching topics, there is a point, and I'm saying this as a writer, there's a point in the writing and the edit editing process in a book's life where every author has to decide how much of himself, how much of the dark side of himself, he's going to show the world. How honest are you going to be with your readers? Are you just going to be the hero who saves the day and waves the flag, kills the bad guys and gets the job done? Or are you going to be brutally honest and expose yourself to criticism and worse by telling the truth? And I know this to be true because this is a conversation I had with my own brother Dylan when we went to write One Soldier. And if you've read that book or if you've listened to this podcast then you know what path we went down. Which at some times was not pleasant or flattering, but it's real. Before writing One Soldier, Dylan said to me, yeah, we're going to do this thing, but we've got to be brutally honest. That includes the good, the bad, and the ugly. And Scott Casey, I, to me as a writer, I think Scott Casey goes down that same path. That path of brutal honesty. He's not trying to pretend that he's someone he's not. And here's just one example of that, which I'm going to pull from the book now. It's his reaction to a Canadian soldier getting his leg blown off. And so back to the book. Did you hear what just happened to Calvin Bartley? He asked. His demeanor was changing slightly and his eyebrows rose to show concern. I said I didn't. It was not normal for Tim to be this serious. No, he's alive, thank God. But he got his leg blown off. Tim's voice was shaky as he began to tell the story. He was visibly upset by the new tale. What the hell happened? I said sternly. While his section was doing a perimeter check and Calvin stepped over a half-down fence, when his foot touched down on the other side, 
Kaboom. Holy crap. My jaw sat hanging open. PMA3, I inquired about the hockey puck-shaped mine. They think that's what it was, Tim continued. He just stepped down, and the next thing anyone knew, he flew eight feet in the air and landed like a ton of crap. You should have seen it, Scotty. How much of his leg is gone, I asked. Not sure, but at this point, it's below the knee. At this point, I quizzed again. Yeah, at this point, it's below the knee, but they may have to amputate further depending on the damage. Man, I sat there contemplating the whole situation. It could have been worse, Tim added. This is where we see a change in Scott Casey's demeanor. Back to the book. Yeah, it could have been worse. He could have blown up his whole section, I said gruffly, and almost void of feelings other than anger. Tim looked at me with questioning eyes, obviously stunned by my blunt comment. What an idiot. He knows better than to step over obstacles like that. They taught us that crap as far back as battle school. And we just did a refresher training before we deployed. What was he thinking? I'll tell you what he was thinking. He wasn't thinking, period. Well, that's kind of heartless, Tim said, disappointed. Hey, it sucks he lost his leg. I won't deny that, but come on, Tim. When was the last time you pulled a move like that? I was really sad for Calvin's loss, but I was mad as well. Unfortunately, the mad had the floor at this time of being. His section let him down too. They should have stopped him before he started to climb over the fence. We all know, t- we all know better, Tim. So just to recap... Uh, Canadian, he steps on a mine, gets his leg blown off, his leg is severed. And Scott Casey's first reaction is, Oh, he knows better, what an idiot. It's his fault. And I think this is one section of the book that Scott Casey could have easily, easily admitted. But he's including it for a reason. When when somebody's injured like that, somebody's un, well, a normal person's reaction is sympathy. Scott Casey's telling us that his reaction is not sympathetic; it's one of anger and blame. So why does he include that? Why is he exposing himself to that criticism? Because on the outside looking looking in, it looks like Scott Casey is just a giant jerk for this. But. He's including this for a reason. He's opening him up to this. He's opening himself up to this criticism because, well, first of all, I think it's it's a reaction that Scott Casey probably regrets. Uh, it's a heartless reaction, which I'm sure he regrets it now. But I think he includes this section to highlight the point that by this time in the mission, after all the incoming, all the killing, the atrocities, he himself is at the moral breaking point. The mental breaking point. And he's not himself anymore. Because what person in the right mind would have this kind of reaction to a comrade getting a limb blown off? Scott Casey, he's including this point because he's not himself anymore. And he's admitting that to the reader. As an author, it would have been very simple to just gloss over this point and move on. But Scott Casey, in the interest of truth... He's giving us the privilege of 
of knowing just exactly what's going on. And I think he's to be commended for that. Case in point about being at the mental breaking point. Well, let's go back to the book. I'm going to read this section right now. On this particular day, I was driving my number six truck for an aid delivery. We had just crossed the Sava River when on the right-hand side of the road, I noticed a building in amongst some others. Sounds normal except for the fact that the building in question was raised to the ground by fire, yet the surrounding ones did not even have any fire damage. I scrutinized the building's contents and I was horrified when I recognized the metal racks as beds. On those beds were the charred remains of children, dozens of them. I looked away. Blown by the wind, the water from my eyes immediately created dusty streaks across my face. By this point, I had become so internally cold that I hoped they were tears. Just another atrocity witnessed. And it's no wonder these guys are so messed up. Let's go back to the book. Another minute and the lead APC and truck crossed over the Sava River. As we drove over the bridge, Tommy said, Good God, that is harsh. What's harsh, Tommy? I asked. That, he said, pointing down towards the river. My foot came off the throttle as I leaned over the center console to get a better look, and I wished I had not. Oh my God, that is raw, I agreed. There on a sandbar in the river were four mangy-looking dogs. Two of them were tug-of-warring over a severed arm. The other two were feasting on the remains of a second man. One of the two feral mutts feasting was only partially visible as it was tearing away at its human meal buried halfway up inside the abdomen of the body. The imagery here is just brutal. Casey paints a pretty grim picture of what's going on in the city at this time. Even earlier in the book, he writes about rats eating bodies. And these are rats the size of, they're not normal rats. They're like football size rats. So I, I think he paints a, a very vivid picture of what's going on right now. And anyways, later that day, they're continuing a patrol around Sarajevo. They're engaged by a sniper. I'm not sure if he's a Croat or a Serb or a Muslim, but let's compare the reaction now with what it may have been a few months previous. So back to the book. I was in the hatch today of our rear guard track. Casey, watch the right side here. The lead track just took some fire from the house on the right. I clicked the switch. Roger. I picked up the C6 and set it on the right side and watched in the direction I was assigned. I fumbled a bit with the bipod but finally got it into a half-decent position. I laid the belt of ammo out so it would not jam or snag. Just as the track ahead of us received fire, so did we. The metallic pings of incoming fire ricocheted off the side of our carrier. Shots cracked inside our ludicrous arm swing method of determining effective fire. The arm swing method he's talking about here, that's if if you can swing your arms in a big giant circle, if the bullets are somehow, if you determine the bullets are somehow in that space, 
then the UN says, okay, it's okay to fire back. And so they call it the arm swing method. Uh, just another bizarre example of the UN rules of engagement, which, you know, looking back or comical at the time, I think it'd be, well, we know what it was like. So he's doing the arm swing method back to the book. This shooter was definitely trying to kill us. I clicked the safety off and strained looking into the sun for my target. The ICS clicked. 100 meters out and in the upper left window, Casey. I angled my weapon up and to the left by lowering myself in the hatch. Even before I could see him, I squeezed the trigger. I fired some controlled burst towards the window. The traces were verifying that I was hitting right on target. That's it, Casey. Rock and roll. Continuous rate. Go on. I squeezed the trigger and held it, unleashing a barrage of fire while I spun in the hatch to stay on target. Ray was firing his C-7 into the building as well. The brass casings were ejecting all over the upper deck, and the links were falling into the open hatch. A couple of Sven's casings tinked off my headset, and one went down my collar. The barrel was starting to smoke as the cleaning oil on it burned off. Months of having our hands tied behind our backs came surging out through my arms and went straight out of the smoking barrel. The shots hit, the buildings were kicking out puffs of red dust from the cinder blocks hidden. Ceasefire came across the intercom. Captain Burke was smiling as he turned in the cupola. Yeah, okay, so Cap Lieutenant Burke, he's now been promoted to captain. Sven smacked me on the back. He screamed above the wind and the engine. That was awesome. You dropped him like nothing, Casey. My adrenaline was coursing through my body like crazy. It felt good to kill. It felt good to kill. Look at how much things have changed in the previous three months. Remember at the beginning of the book, Corporal Casey says that he never wanted to kill anybody. He never fantasized about killing people. He joined the army to protect Canada, to defend Canada's borders from tyranny. Taking life was not on his agenda. And now, three months after being in country and... It feels good to kill. Well, that tells you a lot about the changing state of mind that happened with these men who were in Croatia and Bosnia. And I think it's a natural reaction. I mean, you see this throughout history. Men who are in war zones, they get, well, they're hardened. They're hardened by the death. They want some revenge for their comrades who have been killed, for the atrocities they've witnessed. And they're changed men. And I think certainly Corporal Casey is a changed man. All the pent-up emotion, all the rage, it all comes out in a hail of bullets. And that one unlucky sniper gets it. And at this point of the book, I'm going to fast forward all the way to, well, near the end to the day of September 28th. That's the day Corporal Casey, he knows that he's going to be leaving Croatia because his unit is, well, November Company. They're sent out of Sarajevo back to the Krajina. More men are killed. More men are, you know, getting blown up, stepping on mines. Uh, Corporal Casey's being shot at while driving on the road. He's chasing people through cornfields. It's, it's crazy. I just don't have time to get into it all right now. But 
yeah, September 28th, that's the day where he gets called and he's going back home. And I'm going to read this part right here because I think it really illustrates the, well, the, the emotions that go through, the conflicting emotions that go through your mind and your body when you're, you're passing on to tor- the torch to the next group of guys who are coming in to, to continue the mission. And there's a lot of complicated feelings going on right now. So here we go, page 259, back to the book. Glad to be leaving, wishing I could stay, and wondering what would happen to the Patricias. The Patricias are the Patricia Light Infantry coming in to take over from the Royal Canadian Regiment. Sitting in the halfway comfortable charter bus seat, I looked out the window at a world that I was leaving behind. I was excited and dejected at the same time. An odd feeling of emptiness was creeping in. The flight home was to be an emotional one. My buddy Robertson and I, we stood together and looked at the ugliest 747 we had ever seen. It was painted a flat orange red. It was dreadfully ugly, but we loved it. We all stood out on the runway in a gaggle as it taxied up to us. There was not the typical covered gangway for us to board. We climbed a large flight of stairs to the doorway to true freedom. The freedom to leave this troubled country behind. Robertson and I grabbed a couple seats towards the back and settled in. We did not say much at first, choosing to observe the rest of the lads getting seated. With what must have been one of the quickest refuel and resupplies ever, we taxied out to our designated runway. The jet turbine engine began to whine, signaling that we were going to be really leaving. This was not some carefully planned prank or a horrible nightmare, I allowed myself to believe. We were airborne for about 15 minutes when the most bizarre thing happened. The stress of the last seven months came out as Robertson and I began joking about being so happy we could cry. Well, it didn't take long before the two tough grunts who were laughing turned into a full-blown bawling our eyes out and laughing at the same time. We had said we would not believe it was over until we were on the burden out of Yugoslav airspace. Then and only then did we relax somewhat. The flight was euphoric. You can just imagine these guys, they've been living a they've been living in a hell for the last half year. And they're finally on the plane. They're finally allowing themselves to believe that it's over. And the the emotions are so complicated. They're laughing hysterically and crying and bawling their eyes out at the same time. And as the years have gone by since this mission, this so-called peace mission, stories have begun to trickle out about just what exactly went on. We're beginning to, in some ways, learn a little bit about the experience of these frontline soldiers like Corporal Casey, who were sent to bring peace to the Balkans. The suppression has lifted a little, thanks to the soldiers themselves who want to share their stories. And though there are some key events from this mission, like the Battle of the Medak Pocket that have since become fairly well known in the military community. There's a lot left that remains swept under the rug of recent history. 
And I think if I were to ask Corporal Casey what what the point of writing this book is, I think he would probably say something along the lines that it's time to pull back that rug. It's time to uncover that truth. And the truth is not nice. It's brutal. It's savage. But it's real. And as Canadians, we should know the truth about what we asked our soldiers to, do, to endure. The sniper fire, the shelling, the mortar attacks, the killing, the bloated bodies. We need to learn the lessons of this book. And they are many. And so here are a few, just a few of the key understandings that I think you can walk away with after reading this book. And it's no particular order, but I'm going to start off with lesson one. And that is, in the absence of clear command or instruction, take the lead. Just like Corporal Casey chambering around on the train heading into Croatia, take the lead. Don't be afraid to be the first one. Take that step. Even if it's unconventional, others will follow. And I think it's a lesson that can be applied to our own lives, whether it's at work or in a meeting or really anywhere. Lesson two. Be careful about what you read and see in the media, especially when it comes to war and politics. Because there are agendas at play and talking points masquerading as truth. Like Corporal Casey says well on that Sarajevo tarmac, the people reporting on this war, they didn't know the difference between an officer and an oncom. And if you don't know the basics, then how can you be trusted to give the big picture view about anything? And at the same time, the soldiers who are put in front of the cameras, well, more often than not, they're reading carefully scripted bullet points about, well, of things that have been approved by their chain of command. It's not authentic. It's not real. And I think that's why Corporal Casey stood out so much, because he was a soldier who was going to stray off that message and give his blunt opinion to the cameras. The same is true for politics. When I worked at Parliament Hill, we would get these talking points fed to us by our higher-ups. And then we would then give them to the elected members. And they had, and the, the MPs had to repeat those scripts. Whenever a contentious issue arose, the order was to stay on message. Don't go off script. Say what you've been told to say. Independent thought was not permitted. And so be careful about listening to the people that are put in front of cameras. Lesson number three. No one to break the rules. Like General McKenzie bringing in the heavy guns against the UN wishes or the soldiers going beyond those UN rules of engagement that would get them killed. Use your own intuition and intelligence to ignore those bad rules. You'll feel better about it afterwards and you'll gain respect. Lesson number five. And I think as reading in reading this book, that this is the big one. Society can fall apart quickly. Like Corporal Casey mentioned, Sarajevo went from hosting those beautiful Winter Olympics in 1984, and by the early 1990s, 
The entire city was virtually destroyed. Bodies everywhere, snipers preying on the remnant population that could not escape. It happens quickly. And if you look around at our own country and think, it can't happen here, then you're missing an important lesson. It's taken centuries to build up what we have. Let's be careful with it. Let's make sure we don't go down that same balkanized path of destruction. And lastly, before I go, this isn't a lesson, but I'm going to dedicate this podcast to all the guys who served in this peacekeeping mission and who are still struggling to cope with the trauma they witnessed. The book is called Ghost Keepers. My name is Russell Hillier. Hit all those like and share buttons, and I'll see you next time.